Jamie. I'm Gabby. I'm Nolan. I'm Genesis. And I'm Justin. And this, this is Comics First. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Comicsverse podcast. I'd like to remind everyone before we begin that we can be uh, found all over the internet at comicsverse.com, facebook.com slash comicsverse, at Tumblr, Twitter at at comicsverse, Spreaker, SoundCloud, iTunes, we're pretty much everywhere. Today we're going to be interviewing a jack-of-all-trades, Ari Kaplan, and before we get into the interview, I'd like everyone to uh, go around and say their names and say hello to everyone. Uh, I'm Travis, I'm the editor-in-chief of Comicsverse here, and I'm really looking forward to uh, this podcast. Jake? Hi, I'm Jake, as you so gracefully mentioned, and I'm a recent editor and writer for Comicsverse. I'm looking forward to talking. Brian Del Pozo, staff writer, podcast host, and bad joke teller. I'm Kale Lord, writer and podcaster. Hi, I'm Emily. I'm a new intern writer. Kara? I'm Kara. I write and I'm social media as well. And finally, we've got our esteemed guest today. Would you like to say hello and maybe give us a little background on uh, who exactly is Ari Kaplan? I'm, I'm Ari Kaplan, and I think it's very psychologically revealing that every time you introduce me as a jack-of-all-trades, I keep thinking you're going to say jackass, which is, <laughs> I guess, how I think about myself. But, I, you know, I'm just assuming that that's its jack is going to be followed by ass. But, you know, but it's very nice of you to call me a jack-of-all-trades instead. Yeah, I'm a comic book writer. I'm also a screenwriter for television, video games, and transmedia, and and I am a nonfiction author and been working in the comics industry for about a decade as a writer. Yeah, you've really been all over the place uh, in writing nonfiction, writing movies, writing uh, for Mad Magazine. So could you, uh, let's just start off with uh, what are like some of the differences in working in these various mediums? What do you find particularly challenging about switching from one type to the next? Well, each, each medium presents its own challenges and its own kind of learning curve you know, that you have to sort of soldier through. When, when you're starting to write a, a different medium, you kind of you kind of have to wrap your brain around it. You know, when, when I first started writing for television, I had to get used to the fact that the scripts have to be very short and concise. The scenes have to be very short and concise. And that's true in comic books too. But And, and then in a lot of TV scripts have to adhere to a certain structure, you know. So that, that required its own learning curve at, at the beginning. Uh, but then I got used to it. And it was a lot of fun. And then writing comedy sketches for TV shows, because I was a staff writer on a show that's no longer around, but it was called True TV Presents World's Dumbest. And I wrote a lot of comedy sketches and jokes for that show. And, you know, writing sketches for the show, it's it never, I don't think it's ever going to get old. I don't think I'm ever going to become jaded about seeing my name in the writing credits for a show or seeing my name, you know, credited as the writer for a, a comic or whatever, because uh, I'm a huge um, narcissist is the word. But uh, we all can relate to that. I think we can. But I, but, you know, you still have that kind of joy that you had as a little kid when you saw, you know, it's new comic book day or whatever. But I think you still have that like, ah, that's I wrote that. That's, you know yeah, what I mean? It's got to be a great feeling. Where it was cool because on World's Dumbest, the writer's room was right opposite the, the green screen studio where we shot most of the sketches for the show and the jokes and various other things. And I remember very specifically, I was like walking to get lunch, like leaving the writer's room. And I heard Gilbert Gottfried's booming voice coming out of the the, the studio. Booming? And, well, you know, it's Gilbert. Ah, what the f***? You know, that kind of voice. 
And by the way, when you're writing jokes for Gilbert Gottfried, you and the other writers are pitching the jokes out loud in Gilbert Gottfried's voice and doing an impression of him, because that is the way to write those jokes. And then some one of you is transcribing them, because that is the way you write those kinds of jokes, because you have to get a sense of his kind of his mannerisms and the way he speaks and his inflection and everything. So with certain cast members, it would definitely be imperative that, you know, it was definitely a good idea to like do an impression of them while you're pitching the jokes, you know, to make sure Absolutely. that that works. But he's actually a huge, he he wrote an issue of DC's Super, Superboy comic back in the 90s, the one that took place in the, in the world of the TV show back in like the early 90s. And he's a big Mad Magazine fan as well. And so he and, he and I talked about that a little bit. But I, I just remember like walking past the green screen studio and I heard his voice and he was doing some of my jokes and it was like such a surreal feeling because he's someone I, I grew up really uh, admiring and thinking he was very funny. And he's also one of my dad's favorite comedians. And so it was just so bizarre, but in a good way. But with comics... It's there was there's also a word count that you'd you have to adhere to, and the scenes also have to be pretty concise, but in a different way. Like you know, at the very very beginning, it certainly was a little bit of a learning curve, realizing that you know there's only so much dialogue you can fit into a word balloon comfortably, you know, and so you have to kind of rejigger the way you write for for comics. You have to like adjust it for comics, just like you have to adjust the way you write for television and for different other other kinds of media. But that's it's. I've had to do that so many times in my career that I found it to be fairly easy to adapt. You know, for video games, the big thing is you have to write so much branching dialogue and you have to you have to be like that guy in Men in Black 3 who can see all the possible outcomes of any situation. The Men in Black 3 reference. Didn't think I'd go there, huh? Um, Michael Stilbert. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The, the guy from A Serious Man. Yeah, the guy from the movie. Coen Brothers. Yeah. But you kind of have to be like that when you're writing scripts for video games because you have to think, okay... If I'm talking to Jake and I ask him, where were you the night of the murder? He says this. Or if I, you know what I mean? If, or if I ask him... Where... Especially a dialogue-heavy game, like a Telltale game. Yeah, exactly. And I and I worked on the Telltale Law & Order game. It was called Law & Order Legacies. It came out in late 2011. But a lot of it is, you know, if, I, if I'm talking to you, if I'm a detective... And, and I'm talking to you about a murder, and you say yes to my question, then this happens. If you say no, then this happens. Or if you say no, but something else, this other thing might happen. You have to just plan for all contingencies, and you have to make it as immersive and interactive as possible. And at the very beginning, I've been writing professionally for video games since 2008. And so at the very beginning, again, it was a little bit of a learning curve and an adjustment period, but I found I adjusted to it like pretty easily as with as with television and comics and it became really fun you know it's it's weird but you can kind of indulge that side of yourself that's a little obsessive because you could be like well wait 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 what if this happens wait wait oh we have to plan for this what if this ha-? and whereas in any other area of your life if you do that it drives people crazy but if you do it in a video game you get paid for it so that's kind of cool but you know if you do it in a relationship the relationship is over you know <laughs> so anyway <laughs> Yeah. Have you ever worked on a transmedia property in two different mediums? Not, no, I haven't. That, that's actually a really good question. That almost happened. I was working for a video game company in 2010 called Outspark, which is unfortunately no longer around as far, uh, as, far as I know, unless they've, they've relaunched recently. But, and I was hired to write a 12-part series of webcomics that took place in the world of this uh, MMO called Fists of Foo, which is very much like... If you guys have seen the movie Kung Fu Hustle, it's it's a lot like Kung Fu Hustle. And so I I wrote and also drew thumbnail sketches for this series of, of web comics for them. And it, that was so much fun. And that's kind of how I spent like the summer of tw- of 2010 doing that. And 
I just met the game's producer, Aaron Kraus, at uh, at GDC, Game Developers Conference. And yeah, in San San Francisco in early 2010. That led to this, like very quickly after we we hit it off and, you know, and I showed him my portfolio. And so I was writing stuff for the that took place in the world of the game. And I believe even some of the stuff I was coming out with was being incorporated into the game because I was asking a lot of questions about the relationships between the characters. Okay, if she has a crush on him, can we have them flirting with each other in this in this comic? Or does it take it, you know, is that, am I inventing too much stuff that doesn't exist in the world of the game? And they're like, oh, that's a really good idea. And so the plan was for me to then write some quest scripts for like some of the expansion packs and things like that for the game. But then, then what happened um, shortly after the... The first comic strip went live, and the second one, they sent me, like, the pencil art to approve it, to look at it and see if there needed to be any changes, if it really, like, sold the psych gags and the jokes correctly. As I was giving them my comments on it, I found out there were suddenly a lot of changes in personnel. People were leaving the company, and then shortly after that, I got word that the company was having financial problems. And so, and, and, you know, and so... Unfortunately, the, very yeah. common in gaming. What? It's unfortunately very common yeah. in gaming. and so the the... The comic strip had to be put on hold, like indefinitely, and then there were no expansion packs to be done, you know, and there were no quest scripts to be written. But it was, it was, I was very close to doing that, and it was a real shame because it was one of those games that I really found I understood. Like the characters really spoke to me on a deep level. It was so much fun writing for them. It was fun working with the producers at Outspark. It's really a shame that that happened, but you know, it was the middle of the recession and stuff like that was happening a lot. So. Unfortunately, it did happen, but it, uh, that that I was that was going to happen. And then when I wrote the Speed Racer Chronicles of the Racer comic book series for IDW, which is one of the first one of my first gigs in comics that was that came out in two thousand and eight, I wrote it in late two thousand and seven. And then there were talks. I was talking with the folks that owned the rights to Speed Racer at the time, and they were they approached me because there was a chance they were they were thinking of doing some straight to DVD movies, Speed Racer, and they wanted me to maybe adapt my own miniseries as like a TV movie, as like a straight to DVD movie, which would have been so much fun. Cause I, I had a lot of fun writing that miniseries and, you know, it would have been great to done like an animated version of it. But, uh, you know, again, that, that project got put on hold and then they didn't own the rights anymore. And, and, you know, and so on. The rights, the rights moved to like someone else or something like that. So shortly after that. So it's, I've come close a couple of times. I can't think of anything where I have worked on the same property in two different media. It's possible if it if it if I think of anything I'll let you know. But but it's it's almost happened like two or three times. We'll feature you on our busted Liars Exposed podcast that comes out next week. Um <laughs> I actually just had a, a follow up for the Speed Racer question. Mm-hmm. Was that tied into the Wachowski Brothers film or was that did that predate it? The timing of it was tied into the Wachowski brothers not the Wachowski siblings now, by the way. It's just the Wachowskis. Oh, right. Now. Of course. My apologies. Um, no, it's okay. I'm sure they'll be checking in to make sure that. Oh, totally. We talk hey, all the time too. That's what makes it you, shocking. You know what? I'm actually pitching the fourth Matrix right now. It's it's just all about. It's actually my life story. Did you see a uh, Sense Eight? No. <laughs> No. I haven't seen it yet, but I hear it's really good. But I'll tell you, yeah. you, you joke, but you know, those guys used to write for Marvel Comics. Although I should, not those guys, the, the Wachowskis. Those people. Those folks used to write for, for Marvel. They used to write for Clive Barker's imprint, Razorline, at Marvel back in like the 90s, shortly before they did Bound, actually. Not not too long, like, just a couple of years beforehand. And they were writing some really good stuff. They, they wrote some good comics. They actually wrote the script, which you can find this online very easily, but like this unproduced Plastic Man script that they I wrote. I heard about that. Yeah. That was supposed to be hilarious. The screenplay, yeah, it's it's got a great opening sequence. It's pretty cool. But any, anyway, I don't even know how we got to talking about that. But Speed Racer movie. But Speed Racer. So all right, what happened was I had written a screenplay 
that was, it was a vampire comedy and I'd come very close to selling it and it didn't, didn't end up happening. I didn't end up selling it. I came, came close, got introduced to people at a lot of different movie studios and a lot of different production companies who were possibly interested in the script and, you know, and it got some assignment work from it and an agent also from, from writing it. So it, it worked out for me in a few ways. And shortly after one of my trips to LA to meet with studio executives to, to see about, you know, whether they wanted to, to buy the script, I went to Comic-Con for the first time in 2007. And I met Chris Ryle at IDW. And I thought, well, they do, at the time, they had the license to do the Angel and Spike comics. And I thought, well, they do vampire comics. I just wrote a vampire script. Maybe I could either adapt it as a, a graphic novel or write some of the Angel and Spike comics or something like that, you know, because I love the, the different Joss Whedon TV shows and comic books. Those are, those are wonderful. So... Chris said, you know, he was like, well, I see here, I think I showed him my resume or something. And he was like, you just sold a couple of Ben 10 comics to comic book stories to DC. We're looking for someone to write a, um, a Speed Racer miniseries. And that's going to be all ages, not unlike Ben 10. Would you, are you interested in pitching for that? And I said, sure. So he got on the phone in like August, shortly after Comic-Con. And I had all these ideas that I was going to pitch him, 10 of them. And the 10th idea on the list, I decided to pitch him first because I liked it the most. And it was like, what if Speed Racer discovers that he's the last in a long line of racers, which are these champions that have existed for thousands of years since the dawn of human civilization. And there's like a Roman charioteer who was one of his ancestors in ancient Rome. And the chariot's like the Mach 5, but it's a chariot. And there's one, a pirate racer during the golden age of piracy. And the pirate ship is called the SS Mark, like a, like letters of Mark, which are privateering licenses instead of the Mach 5. And so it would be like a pimped out pirate ship. And he loved that idea. And he was like, don't pitch me any other ideas. I'm gonna take it to the licensor, see if they approve it. And two days later, I was writing Speed Racer miniseries. And it had nothing to do with the movie. He kind of left it up to me, like whether I wanted to do anything that was in any way similar to the movie. I had I had really free reign with it. Chris was incredibly easy to work with and a lot of fun. Great editor. And got to, I had a lot of creative control over it and did stuff like I was... I came up with the cover concepts. I don't mean that I drew them or that I drew concept sketches for them, but I wrote out very specifically like this cover should show this, this, and this, and this, and in the center there should be this medallion because that has to do with the plot. And you know, wrote wrote up these very detailed synopses of what the cover art should be, and wrote the cover. I wrote the copy for Diamond previews for each each issue too, and so I was very, very involved on like a deep level. And it was slated to come out, I believe the the trade paperback. It started coming out in in January of. 2007 and then the trade came out in May in time for the movie. And so it was slated to come out around the time of the movie. But other than that it didn't have anything to do with the movie. Speaking of movies, you were involved in the writing of the recent Deadpool movie as well, correct? I was not. No, I, I thought that you know, uh, we talked about it. Oh, <laughs> oh, my mistake. This will all be cut out. Yeah, I will I, I podcast editor. What what you might be thinking is I w- I played Deadpool under the stage name Ryan Reynolds that I sometimes <laughs> go by. <laughs> It's less ethnic sounding, so uh, you know that's where Reynolds, obviously Kaplan, I get it. It's New the York s- values. Same. I'm in my defense. I'm actually pretty good looking for a comic book writer. So there's that. You got that right. But um, <laughs> you know maybe I'm the Ryan Reynolds of comic book writing. But no, I didn't have anything to do with the Deadpool movie. I would I would love to write some of the comics or or one of the future films. But I I, I thought the first movie was amazing. But. Well, you were involved in uh, some Saturday Night Live writing. No, I. It's weird. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm I, done I, I, asking questions. No, 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 no. No, what's weird is you're not the first. 
You're not the first person to tell me that, though. I keep hearing that I wrote for Saturday Night Live or that I wrote for Mad TV, which I did not. I have written for a few different comedy shows on television. My first writing gig where I was credited in, the, where I was in the writing credits was um, for TRL, writing jokes for Carson Daly. Oh, wow. A long time ago. Yeah. Um, and I've written for, for Kids Next Door on Cartoon Network, codenamed Kids, ne- Kids Next Door, and uh, the PBS Kids show Cyber Chase. So I wrote a bunch of animated shorts for, for that, that series. Gilbert Godfrey was in those as well. And then, of course, I, I wrote for True TV Presents World's Dumbest and a few other tv shows but no nothing on snl so far oh i wrote a book about snl that might be that's what you're why thinking i'm about. thinking yep what is the difference uh in writing comedy that is intended to be performed on a television show versus comedy like your simpsons books where mm-hmm. it's going to be read like what is the difference in the mindset that you as a writer have to take to approach both of those it's interesting. It's it's a really good question. It's something that I certainly started thinking about when I wrote my first script for Bongo, which was in 2008. I wrote a script for Bongo Comics, which I, I've been freelancing for them since then pretty steadily. I've written a lot of scripts for Bart Simpson Comics, but my friend, one for Brian and I were talking about this earlier, one for um, Treehouse of Horror last year, which was a, a lot of fun. But the first story I wrote for them was for Simpsons Winter Wingding in 2008. It was the third issue of Simpsons Winter Wingding, which is their winter holiday special. And it was interesting because, again, there was that period of adjustment where I'm used to writing for performers on television, right, where you can actually hear their voices and you think in your head, okay, how are they going to say this joke? How are they going to say this line? And that's certainly true of writing for the Simpsons, the different Simpsons comics. But you then have to remind yourself, oh, but they're not going to actually the the reader is not going to hear this. They're going to read it. So it depends. You know, you have to sort of keep that in mind and take that into effect when you're writing the scripts. It makes the joke writing just a slight bit different. You know, yeah, I imagine like wordplay where a word needs to be spelled a certain way, but pronounced a different way for the sake of a pun would be mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. that doesn't play as well in a, a read form versus performed. That's something that's definitely something that happens. And also, yeah, stuff where, you know, you can do stuff that that's supposed to be said sarcastically, but you have to kind of do it a different way, you know, where, where like. Right. Like I would imagine like comic book guy on the simpsons Mm -hmm. a majority of why he works on the series has to do not that the dialogue isn't funny but a lot of it has to do with hank azaria's performance and a sarcastic inflection and what have you that especially if someone's reading the comic who's not fully familiar with the character Mm -hmm. they're not going to get a laugh out of it it's true and yeah and yet one one of my more recent projects is i'm writing these i was telling jake uh, earlier i'm writing these two lego star wars books for scholastic right now right and I'm having a blast with those. It's amazing. And the first one comes out in June and it's called Face Off. It has nothing to do with the John Travolta, Nicolas Cage movie, thank it's a goodness. Great movie. I, I, it's a fun movie. Is it a great movie? No, I'm That's great the, in the sense of one can enjoy it when watching it. Based on it's a, an entertaining movie. Based Let's on a true that. story. Not a lot of people don't know that. Based on a true story, it's actually it a documentary. It yeah. happened. It, yeah. it happened. Somehow they switched physiologies. What, to, uh, what era is the Lego Star Wars movie set in? It's very, it's, a, it, it's kind of. How do I put this? Basically, the idea behind the the first book, which I'm I'm not able to talk about the second one because it hasn't been announced yet, but Face Off, the first one, first Lego Star Wars book, the idea is that it's kind of like, you know how when you and your friends would get together as kids and you'd be like, I wonder who'd win in a fight, like... You know, well, Batman versus Superman is about to come out. So, but that's that all. That's all. Question: Kids are always asking each. You know, who would win in a fight, like a caveman or an astronaut or whatever. You know, or who would or a ninja? 
What? Yeah, exactly. A pi- there you go. Yeah, pirate or a ninja. There you go. And so this is pitting different characters against one another who've never actually fought in the Star Wars movies or TV shows and having them actually face off against one another. And then I'm, I'm pulling up all their stats and their info and making jokes and their tech and their weaponry and gear and stuff and making jokes about all of that. And then having them face off against one another. And so it's kind of that. It's characters that you've never seen fight in the, in the Star Wars movies, but you've always been like, I wonder what would happen if, if this character fought this character. So it doesn't really, it's not really dependent on taking place in any specific era. You know, it involves characters from all the eras of Star Wars. And I'm just having a blast writing it, but because it's meant to be read, I very much had in mind like Douglas Adams's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books and stuff like that. And that's, I'm working with this great editor at Scholastic, Mike Petranik, who used to be an editor at um, Paper Cuts until I think sometime last year. And I'd worked with him at Paper cuts and also i'd written some stuff for some star wars parodies for mad magazine which are- which ones i i've been oh, okay. reading star well, wars parodies for mad I, since i was thank you very small three of the ones in they're all collected in this book mad about star wars and i think because of those two projects that's why mike thought of me for this and he's, he's just been a lot of fun to work with but one of them was this 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 poster parody that i did a long time ago but it's certainly one of galaxy far far away no well it's it's a parody of the poster for attack of the clones and it's called clone of the attacks and it's uh, gulf wars episode two clone of the attacks and i'm not i don't want to if someone can find this I, I should have bookmarked it that would have been a good idea to have prepared but it's it's somewhere in here but it's and it's the idea is that it's like george w bush's anakin skywalker it's, yeah so right exactly he's finishing what his father started because star wars is a saga about parents and children it's a soap opera the bush it. the bush dynasty is a saga about parents and children and it certainly wasn't 2002 when bush was in office so i thought it'd be fun to make a joke about this what's weird about it, it was too, yesterday when jeb uh, left oh uh, yeah i mean yeah yeah, and when and when he tweeted his a picture of his gun, please clap, America. You know, like a yeah, like a psych, you know, like a like a psychopath would do. Jesus. Anyway, so um, can't help but feel bad for him. I mean, I suppose I found it so funny. Like when the Pope said, like Trump's values are not like Christian values or whatever. They started interviewing Jeb Bush to get his reaction, and I was like, doesn't this guy have like half of a percent vote? Like his opinion officially means nothing at any point. I think here. the epitome of his campaign is when he asked uh, his constituents to clap. No, oh, yeah, that's right. No, I thought that, that was pretty amazing. But you know, when in two thousand two, when everyone was talking about this, the, the oh God, we're having another Gulf War, and it's like, so I thought I. I it would be a fun idea. I wrote it with Scott Sonenborn, who's a, right now. I think he's the head writer on Pickle and Peanut, the the Disney Disney XD show, and he's a very good comedy writer. And he's written for like you know all these all these different TV shows. And he and I wrote a few different Mad Magazine things together. Thank you. Yes, there it is. The Gulf Wars episode two, Clone of the Attacks. You know, and we had George W. Bush, and I don't know if any of this is showing up. Is any of this on camera? Two cameras going right That's there. That's what I thought. Only two? Come on. <laughs> Get it together. Do you shoot better from the left or the right side? Just I My right. best side is all sides. Oh, okay, so, that's excellent. good. We and, need to get more cameras in here. The more, the more Underneath cameras, all this plastic surgery, I'm actually 85 years old. I grew up with Stan Lee and all those guys. Never would have guessed We it. were in World Frank War II. Frank Miller, II. is that you? You grew up in the tenements, didn't you? <laughs> Yeah, I played stickball, and yeah. what else do old people say that they did? I listen uh, to the radio. 15 miles in the snow. Yeah, there ways. you go. Uh, you could get yeah. a, see a movie and a Chinese dinner for a nickel. Yeah, wrote, wrote, uh, wrote my uh, my homework in chalk on a shovel. Oh, wow. You know, all that good stuff. Those were the days. There were 48 states. What's the Monty Python sketch where they're just comparing how bad their childhood yeah. was? Yeah, yeah, they're in like a, some kind of like like millionaires club or something like that, and they've all made it and everything. But anyway, but this was weird because I'm this big left wing liberal, and I wrote this piece, and Scott and I wrote this piece, and Scott Bricker, 
I think that's how you say his name, B-R-I-C-H-E-R. But he's he's a great artist and he does a lot of stuff for Mad and he illustrated it. And But Fox News found it very funny and put it up on their, their TV show and was nice. like, like mentioned it and then showed a, a picture of it. I didn't think they recognized humor. I didn't think that they would either, but they for some reason did. And then because of that, what's weird is that then my wife wrote in and got like a transcript of the episode where they mentioned it, where they showed it. And ever since then, I've been on the Fox News like email list. So they like email oh, wow. me. It's good to know what your enemy is up to. I guess so. It's like gives me material every now and again for stuff that I'm writing. Every now and then, but it's every now. So well, it's such a bizarre network. It's so weird. It's just like this bizarre world take on stuff. You know, no one's done a bizarro world. Well, for obvious reasons, no one's done a bizarro episode where the bizarre. What would bizarro Trump be? Ooh, that's interesting. What would bizarro? Hey, DC Comics, hire me to write bizarro. All right, let's get a change.org. Ari Kaplan, bizarro. Trump looks a lot like like Modoc. And I actually thought thought that and I wrote a Modoc story for that five minute Avenger stories collection. It was a story with Tony Stark and Hawkeye and Modoc. Modoc uh, doesn't have a toupee though. Modoc doesn't I thought I was But I think he'd look good with one. I think well the thing is that you could compare Donald Trump to Modoc, but that's sort of unfair to Modoc. That's true. <laughs> it's like he's Modoc, but he's less intelligent and less charming than Modoc and less more crazy than Modoc also. And his hair doesn't look as good as Modoc's. But it's oh, I just thought it. It's if he was Modoc, it'd be mobile organism designed only for conservatives, but with a K. Conservative. Does that work? Or, or, I think crazy. Or three it's actually three K. Ks three to K's. really drive it there home. There you go. Ah. <laughs> but I always just thought if they're I, this, did, has anyone ever realized this that like that like popcorn tubs at the movies are shaped like Modoc? So if they ever put Modoc into a Marvel movie, they've got to capitalize on that. Ah. You could be eating popcorn out of Modoc's head, and then it's mobile it's organism. Branding. Yeah, it's mobile or- organism designed only for kernels, which does nice. start with a K. So there you so. So someone should get on that and give me money then. Right. Um, you heard it here first. Gonna, anyway, going to yes. go ahead and trademark that so we can get the uh, get a sweet cut. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so question about your Lego Star Wars yeah. work. So what has been the most entertaining face-off that you wrote for that project? I don't know how many of the specific face-offs that I can talk about. Fair enough. Um, I don't know. Cause it Is c- Jar Jar versus Palpatine in one of them? I was going to ask if Jar Jar makes an appearance. I don't think... Think I think Wada I don't remember. I don't remember because I I've done a couple different different drafts and everything, and like layered it with jokes and everything. I don't remember. Palpatine is in it, and Palpatine is so much fun to write jokes about and dialogue for and everything. And he, because he's such a fun villain, he's, he's just the hammiest, and the, he's my favorite villain. You can just tell Ian McDermott is just having such a blast, and you can tell, and he's this Shakespearean actor, and you can tell it's like writing like Iago and Othello or something like that, which I, I don't know if he's ever played Iago, but I know he's done a he's lot done of Shakespeare. Othel- he's done Iago. Has he done, I, I, you can tell. I mean, it's just... He even compare, has compared, in his own words, Palpatine to Iago. Well, it's, it's very similar character. It's very similar. And so I, I, I'm, not, I'm not surprised by that at all. But I don't know which one's the most fun mashup or face-off that I've done. I can say like which characters are so much fun to write jokes about. It's a lot of fun writing stuff for writing jokes about Palpatine, writing jokes about Darth Vader is a ton of fun. Writing jokes about Luke, writing jokes about Poe Dameron, jokes about Rey. Although on the other hand, what's what's interesting about Rey is she is such a good role model and she is such a fascinating character. My daughter's five years old. She's she hasn't seen Force Awakens yet, but she wants to. One of the reasons is Rey. What I think is so wonderful about that movie is that that it is that she is such a dynamic character 
that like women and so many women and girls and men as well, but specifically so many women and girls find her to be such a relatable character and such a strong character that they can identify with. You know what I mean? It's great that she's like a gearhead and every, but there's a lot of stuff that you can draw on when you're writing anything about her, whether it's serious or comedic. So that's, that's absolutely. Cool. I forgot that uh, you would have had the newer characters to play with as well in this book. Is it oh, sure. any more challenging to write the newer characters versus the older ones? Because of one movie of sample size versus the right, yeah. the older ones. I don't, in, Even in the a, prequel characters. Have in played. a way, but the weird thing is that the biggest challenge about writing any kind of Star Wars humor book is that there have already been so many Star Wars jokes in in Mad Magazine, some of which I've made myself, and on Robot Chicken, and on Family Guy, and on and Spaceballs, and so many other movies and TV shows and everything. that, And in the different Lego Star Wars TV shows, like Droid Tales and stuff, and the Yoda, New Yoda Chronicles, and I think that's what it's called, New Yoda Chronicles? I believe yeah, so. I believe so. And all of which I respect those those TV shows and properties and, and, and everything so much that it's like, well, I don't want to... I don't want to go and retread that ground. I want to come up with something original. So that's kind of that's where it's a little bit of a challenge. But I'm but I'm having a lot of fun with it. Oh, and it's good coming up with Chewbacca jokes. That's a lot of fun, also. Always fun. And Greedo jokes about how lame Greedo is. That's he always is pretty lame. That's always fun. Do but, you um, deal? Have you dealt with Lucas licensing directly, or is it all through Scholastic? No, it's well, it's there's my editor at Scholastic, Mike Petranic, and then there's uh, Lucas Lucasfilm vets it and and gives me notes through my editor, and then. And I believe Lego also looks at it. Lucasfilm has been has been a lot of fun to work with. They're very easy to work with. They've been the notes have been pretty light. They've been mostly things like, well, as we've seen on Rebels, this character comes from this planet, not this planet. So you should really have them come from this planet that we've now discovered that they're that they're from. You know what I mean? Because we've got all this new backstory about this character. Clone Wars showed us this this character's new new origin story or whatever. You know, and that's fine. That's like you know, if you're gonna get notes like that you should get them from the source which is it doesn't come any more direct than getting them from lucasfilm themselves you know do you deal with the story group i believe so some members of the story group i'm not exactly sure how it's it's uh codified you know but i i, I believe so but they've been very easy to work with and that the thing is like you said they they seem to they have a really good sense of humor about this kind of stuff and they they have a very good sense of humor about the mad magazine stuff and similarly they've had a good sense of humor about the stuff that i've written for the the lego star wars books and you know, they, they know that it helps the brand and everything and that it's all in good fun and, and everything. And so they've been very good humored about it. And so, yeah, my brother. Oh, yeah. When I when I wrote the thing for Mad, the uh, the Gulf Wars parody poster, which was basically it was Scott Sonneborn and I writing the fake credits, you know, and which included and Osama bin Laden as the Phantom Menace, which is uh, one, one of the jokes that we're proudest of. And then, you know, coming up with like stage directions where we sort of cast it, you know, where we had like Condoleezza Rice as Queen Amidala and having her hair kind of flowing in the same way as in that Drew Struzan poster, you know. And we had like Colin Powell looking very stiff, like C-3PO, like kind of waving his arms in the same way. And Scott Bricker did, did a really good, I think it's Bricker, maybe it's Britcher, but I think it's Bricker. And my brother was working for Lucasfilm as a digital sculptor and lead character character modeler at the time and he knows that that like it was being passed around the office and like on people's computers and stuff and it really went viral uh in a big way in a way that we couldn't have we couldn't have foreseen you know we being myself and and the two scots scott sonerborn and scott bricker but also the editors at mad and it just kind of took all life its own where some people 
were posting it online and signing their names to it and saying, look what I just did, and like claiming credit for it, which was kind of ridiculous because it was really obvious it came from Mad Magazine. But they were like, you know, photoshopping out the Mad logo on the bottom of the page. <laughs> and like, as people will do online, and it, but it was so shamelessly done, you know what I mean? And I think at a certain point, the Mad editors just threw up their arms and like, okay, whatever, you know, people are just going to do this. Uh, it's the internet, you know what I mean? But obviously, if you have any sense in your head, you know where it originally came from, you know. But after a while, people were just posting it everywhere, and it's just impossible to monitor or control or police that. Do you know if George himself saw it? I believe he did. I was told that he did. In fact, I was interviewed. The gentleman who wrote this book, Jonathan Bresman, is a colleague of mine. He's a really good writer, and he's worked with Hasbro and a number of other companies for years. And I know that Jonathan was working for Lucasfilm for a while, too. And I believe that either through my brother or through Jonathan, I got through Jonathan Bresman, through one of those two folks, I got word that that George Lucas himself had seen it and had had, had liked it. I talk about it in here. I don't remember exactly how he saw it or whatever, but I, I was interviewed for this book in addition to having three of my my Star Wars themed pieces in here. Is that gratifying to to find out that he saw it? Yeah, it absolutely, like it absolutely is. And it's weird because for a while, a lot of the stuff that I was writing for Mad, the targets of the different parodies were actually getting a hold of it. Like I wrote this thing years ago called What If Chris Rock Performed at a Bar Mitzvah? And it was uh, where, where I, I do a lot of speak, uh, speaking gigs all over the world. And because I wrote that book from Krakow to Krypton, I do a lot of speaking gigs at different synagogues and Jewish organizations too. And I would have like about a year, for about a year or so after the Chris Rock piece came out, I had all, all these kids around Bar Mitzvah age, both boys and girls who were Bar Mitzvah age, in the case of the girls, come up to me afterwards and be like, oh, you wrote that Pete, the Chris Rock thing. And that was nice, but I, but there was the folks at MAD, the editors got sent this photo of Chris Rock himself looking at it and uh, looking at the piece, looking at the what if Chris Rock performed at Bar Mitzvah. So they like sent me a photo of this, of him like looking at it and holding it up. So that was that was pretty cool. That was nice to see. Those were the, the big two examples, the George Lucas and the Chris Rock one. But I think there may have been like one or two other cases where like I parodied someone and then that person saw the parody, the MAD parody, which is always kind of cool, you know. It's pretty neat. You mentioned earlier the uh, the five-minute Avengers stories. Could you elaborate a little bit more on those? I can. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is the five-minute Avengers story collection. Five-minute Avengers stories is so-called because the stories, each story is timed with a stopwatch so that you can read it in five minutes, about five minutes. While you're writing it, you time it with a stopwatch. And so each of the five-minute Avengers stories is about at least one of the Avengers characters. I have a story that's about Falcon. From, you know, Falcon and, and uh, Captain America is in it too, and so is Black Widow, but it's mostly about the Falcon. And um, another story is uh, is an Iron Man story, and the third one is about Hawkeye, although Modoc and Iron Man are also in that story. That story is called Robin Hawk, and what basically happens is that Iron Man, Modoc, and Hawkeye accidentally get sent out, sent back in time to medieval Europe. And it starts out with, you know, Hawkeye thinking that he's not as cool as as Tony is, as Tony Stark is. And then when they go back in time, everyone thinks that Tony is a knight because of his giant suit of armor. And everyone thinks that Modoc is an ogre because he looks like in it. That's their frame of reference. And so he starts rampaging the com- country through the countryside like an ogre. And they think that Hawkeye is Robin Hood because he's dressed in this gaudy costume. And also he's got a bow and arrow and he helps people. So of course he's Robin Robin Hood. Of course you're Robin Hood. Why would, you know what I mean? Who else, 
who else would you be? And he tries to convince them that he's not Robin Hood because he doesn't like to like lead them on falsely or anything. He's a good guy. You know, Hawkeye's a nice person, but they won't have it. They won't, they don't believe that he's not. Of course you're Robin Hood. Look at you, you got the colorful costume and you got a bow and arrow. And he, and he also discovers, Hawkeye also discovers that since it's medieval times, there's nothing cooler than being an archer. So now he's the cool one. So it's all about like finding your niche. It's kind of the lesson for kids and, you know, being confident in who you are and what you do. And, but the cool thing is I, I kind of have like a little bit of like a butterfly effect kind of thing going on in this story where I kind of wanted to make it almost like Ray Bradbury for kids where because of the fact that they've gone back in time, even though only maybe like a dozen people have, have met them in, in this little town in medieval Europe, even though it was just a, such a slight effect that they had on the past, when he goes back, when Hawkeye goes back into, uh, goes forward back into, you know, goes back to his home to the 21st century with everyone else, and he Googles Robin Hood and he sees pictures of himself. From like illuminated manuscripts and like arrowheads and nice. stuff like that. And, you know, with like pictures of like a guy with like the Hawkeye, the the dark sunglasses and like the little the arrow shape on his chest and you know what I mean? Nice. And and the spiky hair and everything. And it's obviously him. You know, so in, in medieval times, they give him a um, an arrow as like a present for saving their lives. The, the villagers, the blacksmith gives him, gives him an arrow and it's got like a picture of him on the, on the arrowhead, like a little, almost like you'd see in like an illuminated manuscript or something. And then of course, when he Googles it, you know, he Googles himself. So now he is, according to history, Robin Hood looks like him because of the, because of the things that they did. It has this ripple effect where now the, the general representation of Robin Hood is, as you know, Jeremy Renner, you know, not Jeremy Renner, but you know, Hawkeye. Anyway, it'd be funny if it was Jeremy Renner though. That's very interesting. I've noticed, uh, between, you know, this story here and then your, your focus on history throughout, uh, Krakow to Krypton, Mm -hmm. the pirate stories Mm -hmm. you were showing me earlier, Mm -hmm. speed racer as well. It seems like you take a lot of influence from history itself. Um, why the fascination with history? I don't know. It's, it's weird. I, I actually have this theory because I've lectured on history a lot and because I've written a lot of historical fiction and a lot of comics that have some kind of historical bent to them, that I have this theory that just remembering when I was a kid in history class and having bad history teachers, and I know that, you know, because sometimes you would think that that history was boring, you know, when you're when you a kid and you're in school. And I realized that, like, I had some teachers, and I would think that certain whole eras of history were boring. And that's actually not the case. It's just that they were teaching it badly. And I think that you've got to teach history really badly for it to be boring because it's so not boring. It's exactly the opposite. And it's Fast. like, and it's like, yeah, you're doing it wrong I, I, if you're making it boring. I had, when I was working on World's Dumbest, uh, there was this producer there, Pat Twist, who used to also write stuff, I believe, for MTV Geek. He's, um, he's a huge comic book fan. And he's got like this collection of like Star Wars memorabilia and stuff. And so he and I would often have talk, have conversations about this. And we would talk about like bad TV shows and he would get upset and he'd be like, you know, talking about a, a terrible TV show. And he was like, no, you're doing it wrong. If you're making a show like that, you're doing it. You're making bad TV. You're doing it wrong. And I kind of feel the same way about history. You know, if you're, if you're teaching it in a boring way where the students take away is that it's dull, you're doing it wrong because there's nowhere in history that's not fascinating, you know? And so also having written all these nonfiction books and everything and these like comic book stories that have to do in some way with different part different eras of history I can't not find it fascinating 
and I keep drawing from it and getting ideas from it. And and also I get just get called upon to write historically themed comic book stories a lot. Like after I wrote the Robin Hawk story, I know my editor at Disney Book Group's Marvel Press imprint, which which put this out, but my editor there at Disney is Tomas Palacios, and he said he's a really great editor, and he, he said, you know, we love all the three Avengers stories that you wrote, but particularly the Robin Hawk story came out really nicely. Would you like to write another time travel story for us? And I was like, yeah. And yeah, sure. Twist my arm. You know, that's the sounds great. And he was like, well, we're coming up with a new Spider-Man storybook collection because they've done at least one other Spider-Man storybook collection, I think in 2012. And there, there's one that's coming out in just a couple months in May. And he had me write a Spider-Man story where it goes into the Old West. And I'm kind of fascinated by the Old West. And I've written a few different stories that take place there. And I, I know a lot about it. And I wrote this this story where Spider-Man goes into the Old West and he fights Billy the Kid. And I web-slinger versus gunslinger. Exactly, yes. Yeah. I think I, don't, I actually can't remember right now whether this was the title that we settled on, but it was one of the potential titles was Fastest Web in the West, which I think like, sounds sounds pretty nice. But it was Spider-Man I basically thought, okay, Spider-Man and Billy the Kid are both teenagers and they're both thought of by society as outlaws, and so they at least have those two things in common. And I think I may draw the parallel in the story. I don't remember whether in the final draft of the story i drew that parallel or not but i was certainly certainly had in mind when i was writing the story of course the big difference is that spider-man isn't an outlaw i mean technically he's a vigilante but you know you have to be j jonah jameson to think that spider-man's a bad guy really most people don't whereas billy the kid actually was sincerely a psychopath you know or was he a sociopath i don't know but i actually ended up doing a ton of historical research for that story basically because the idea like lent itself to doing a massive amount of research which is that the idea is that spidey when he finds himself in the Old West, he thinks that he's he's on Easy Street. He, he knows exactly what to do because he grew up watching Westerns on TV with Uncle Ben. And so, of course, I know, I know how to navigate myself through the Old West. I, I watched cowboy movies when I was a kid. But, of course, he realizes very quickly that they were full of all these unrealistic cliches that just and things that never happened, that they, they were completely inaccurate, the, the movies that he grew up on. So now he has to learn what the actual Old West is like and what the real rules are and what the what, how to really navigate through it. And so, for that reason, I actually had to do quite a bit of research in, into the, the real Old West and how it differs from the, the different movie cliches that we've seen over the, the past like 100 years of, of filmmaking. And it was really, it was so much fun. I had a great time writing that story. I think it came out rather well. I kind of can't wait till it comes out in May. So, you know, it's it's when you deal with history, I think it's like imperative to just make it fascinating and show that it is fascinating. Absolutely. You know? Kale, were there any uh, cliches that you really enjoyed like looking at and like kind of taking apart or? I'm trying to actually, that's a really good question. I'm trying to think right now because now that now that I've told you that it's of course it's like well what cliches shoot I can't remember right now or were there any that you were like really surprised to learn that were a cliche there like that you've never seen or well I I did I did learn there was one cliche I had to keep in the story just to make it presentable as an old west story which is that in the real old west most people did not wear cowboy hats they wore like bowler derbies and stuff like that and other kinds of hats but I thought it's a kid's story especially but even if it was a story for adults to make it read visually as an old west story I have to put in my art notes that the illustrator is supposed to have them wearing cowboy hats and I I think I even mentioned it in the story that they're wearing cowboy hats because I just I have to have it readable as a Western, as an old uh, taking place in the Old West. And some people did wear cowboy hats, but the majority of them did not. And I think there's even jokes about that in Back to the Future 3 when, when like Marty McFly shows up in the Old West. I was actually going to bring that up. It reminds me of Back to the Future 3. Uh, yeah, Doc yeah. Brown dresses him in that pink and purple outfit 
like 1950s western mm-hmm, outfit mm-hmm. sends him back in time and they want to lynch him yeah they lynch yeah. marty and and i mean they don't Eastwood, they please. they so don't know what to make of, of spider-man when he's in the old west i think they call him pajama man because he's he's it looks like he's wearing because i thought what's their frame of reference for sort of like in the the modok story in robin hawk what's their frame of reference for modok they would think he's some kind of ogre some kind of medieval monster you know so what's their frame of reference for for spider-man well he looks like he's wearing long johns he's wearing his pajamas so pajama man yeah. Have you thought about kind of creating a historical fiction that's not necessarily tied to an IP or a branded character that's just straight, you know, taking an era and doing your own, whether it's creator owned or a separate series? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Nothing that I can really talk about right now, but there there are a couple of things like pitches and things that I've sort of been chopping around a little bit that, that, that are more much more original ideas that have to do a lot more with that. Yeah. But the other thing about it, I'll just say that just one thing about the uh, about the Spider-Man story is just also trying to figure out specifically how someone would get around. How would you stop a criminal in an era when there's like no Google, no GPS, no, how would you find out where they're going to be next and actually try and track them down and uh, try to have the upper hand on them? And so I actually had to think about that when I was writing the story and make it kind of credible. And what I came up with was just that, well, there were these stagecoach routes and so if he was hitting, if Billy the Kid was hitting stagecoaches and, you know, what, what's the next one on the route, you know, where does it stop? He would probably be, be trying to ambush them at that stop. So he would get a, a map of the routes, you know what I mean? And I would have like, and so I had to do research on that kind of stuff. But that's, that's basically all I could come up with. And I, but I think it's actually pretty valid. I think it's pretty accurate to what would have happened. Yeah. I just had a question, you know, yeah. um, it just kind of popped into my mind. Spider-Man in the Old West, he has nothing to web swing from. It's like, I'm yes. curious, does that come up? Or? That actually did come up while I was writing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because there's like these low-hanging, there's these, these buildings are not so, there's no skyscrapers in the Old West. And so, you know, there's barely, there's these little storefront, you know, these little buildings. And so, yeah, that does, that does happen. We also do see some Old West versions of certain Marvel Universe characters. Do we get a uh, Ghost Rider cameo? We Carter do. Slid? We do not. But let's just say maybe, maybe Nick Fury has an ancestor in the Old West. Maybe, maybe Nick Fury does. Are we? Are we sure know. that's an ancestor? That's not. You're sure that's not Nick Fury? <laughs> life model decoy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, like a steampunk life model decoy, where it would be like, yes, it's steam powered. You know. Did you ever read uh, Marvel sixteen oh two? Oh yes, I, I love that story, and I love that kind of stuff, and and. It's one of the things that really, I guess, inspired the Speed Racer miniseries and inspired stuff like the the Spider-Man story. I love the idea of like, what is the medieval equivalent of these characters? What is the ancient Roman equivalent of this character? What it, I don't know why I, have, I, I love that kind of concept, but I love the idea. I guess one of the ideas, one of the things that history has taught me is that the more things change, the more they stay the same. And that's something that the Star Wars screenwriters play with a lot. That's one of the major themes of Force Awakens. But it's something that you find a lot in folklore and in mythology and in, you know, in just the more things change, the more they stay the same. This generation goes through very similar trials and tribulations to what the previous generation encountered. And it's kind of like there's only so many 
stories out there after a while you get into like variations on them you know and uh that's that's i guess that's something that runs through a lot of my work there's there's even a character in the speed racer miniseries that actually says the more things change the more they stay the same kind of spells it out and and by the way one of the uh part four of the speed racer miniseries does take place in the old west and there's yeah and racer x is kind of this lone ranger type character the 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 racer x the version you know the ancestor of racer x that we see in the story anyway he's not actually racer x not to change the topic but just to sure, divert sure, a please. bit i know and i believe it, you brought it up earlier that you teach um, screenwriting classes mm-hmm. and what have you so i'm just curious is do you find it easy to try and teach screenwriting to others like as far as like I guess with me, my personal writing, it's mm-hmm. a very it's a very personal process that I don't know if I could put it into words or, or try and find a way to, to teach someone else how to do that. So I'm just curious, how do you go about that? Okay, yeah, no, that's a good question. What I what I try to do a lot is just sort of think when I was studying screenwriting, what are the things that I really found the most useful? And then on the other hand, what are the things that I found that, that I never learned in screenwriting class and that I only learned when I was sort of thrown into the deep end and started writing for different TV shows? You know, what are the things that like all scripts have in common, whether you're talking about television or movies or comic books or whatever, you know, about the, just about the fact that like a lot of, a lot of these, these different scripts rely on a sort of a cause and effect relationship between the scenes where one scene the end of one scene affects the beginning of the next which ends you know you know what i mean what happens in one scene directly leads to the next scene which leads to the next scene which leads to the next and just sort of this cause and effect relationship between the scenes and just what goes into creating a character what does it mean creating a character when you're dealing with when you're dealing with collaborative media when you're dealing with media where you know, everyone knows what it means to create a character when you're writing prose fiction, when you're writing like a novel or a short story, because everything that you're seeing is on the page, is in the words. But what does it mean to create a character when you're writing for uh, for movies or for television, where you, some of the work that you're doing as a writer is interpreted by the actors? And, you know, that's on one hand. And on the other hand, when you're writing for comics, where it's being interpreted by the penciler and inker and letter and colorist. So some of the work that you're doing as a writer is kind of invisible to the to your audience you know, to the reader or to the viewer, depending on which medium you're talking about. So just sort of demystifying that and explaining it to the, to my students that I feel like is a big part of my job. Like if you're, if your work is being interpreted by an actor and you're a screenwriter, well then what, aside from the dialogue, what is your contribution to creating this character? You know what I mean? And like a lot of it is about the character's personality and worldview and attitude and, you know, and how that factors into what they say and do. And just the fact that you have to like you have to explore that so much and have that figured out before you write word one of the script, you know, so that that's, that's a lot of that. What I teach to my students. Where do you teach? Digital Film Academy in um, here in New York. And then also sometimes I teach at the School of Visual Arts, which, you know, I teach comic book writing courses there. Did you see people, uh, places and things? The movie with uh, Jermaine from Flight of the Concords. Oh, no, no, no. But doesn't one of the characters he is an teaches, SVA teacher, he right? He teaches comic book writing at SVA. That's right. I heard about this. Someone was recommending this movie to me recently, yeah. but could just for that reason. Starts, yeah. Uh, dating a very attractive woman. <laughs> Are you trying to tell me that I should? Yes, I should leave my wife and start I, dating some other woman. <laughs> no, that's you're right. That's what all comic book writers at SVA do, apparently. S- sorry, sorry, sweetheart. I just no, it's I'm been a good run. Yeah, let's go with that. Sure. Um, no, no, no. I do want to actually see that. I, I thought what we do in the shadows was amazing. What we do in the shadows is fantastic. Is one of it's so it's he's doing Thor. 
Wait, the Jermaine... guy who directed it. Oh no, no, no! I heard about that. I thought you meant Jermaine Clement Jermaine was going to take Thor. over the role as Thor. Yes, he is Thor. Which I would see the hell out of that movie, even if it was awful. You Another know, just... Men in Black three reference. Yeah, yeah, that's right, Jermaine Clement. But no, I, I actually thought you meant that Jermaine Clement was going to be the bad guy in Thor three. Which... I think that's Kate Blanchett. Actually, oh, I think you're right. That's right. That's right. But the guy that directed What We Do in the Shadows is he's directing this movie. That sounds great. That's and he has a he has a new movie that just came out. I believe it was at Sundance this year. Oh, what I is don't it? remember the title unfortunately but uh it's supposed to be if you can if only we all had small rectangles where we could on, pull up this information on. only in a there very, were a quick way hold if, on if only if there only were a way. a way yes what is that arthur c c clark quote the only you know the magic is any sufficiently advanced technology it's can be mistaken indistinguishable for, for is magic. indistinguishable for magic and it's weird because our uh, isaac asimov actually has an essay sort of about that about the idea that like you know you look at these arabian night stories from from so long ago and they have like you know you say open sesame and a door opens and we kind of have the equivalent of that now where you could just you know unlock things with a computer password or whatever and everything you know and and so we're kind of at that point i think in it's a way. called hunt for the wilder people and it just came out Oh, he did that movie? I didn't know yeah. that was... I knew that movie. I didn't know that was... That what is What it. is this? What is Hunt? It's about a national manhunt is ordered for a rebellious kid and his foster uncle who go mis- missing in the wild New Zealand bush. Oh. Please check out Comics First, where we'll be soon posting a trailer. Really? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. Pro- we, probably we, not. Yeah. No. Perhaps but, if uh, there's a comic book adaptation. The yeah. director was in it. He was the other vampire. The, uh... Oh, um, which one? The very friendly one who was in love. Yeah, the one who's sort of like a dandy. He's the like, one who is like a fashionista yeah, kind of. Kind of fashionista, yeah. yeah, yeah Edward yeah. Cullen? Uh, I don't know. I heard vampire who's sort of a dandy. No, See, no. I, I just think of Spike. That kind of ages me, I guess. No, 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 no. I, I, I'm a big fan of Spike. He's one of my favorite characters from kind the of... Dog the... from the Rugrats? Rugrats, Spike. No, Spike from Buffy. No, I, I know. Not Spike from My Little Pony Friendship is Magic either. Friendship is way. magic. Friendship is magic, and that show is pretty amazing. And we can't yeah. distinguish between magic and, and, technology. Technology. and technology. Well, on Thor, Ladies and gentlemen, that segue is brought to you by Comics First. <laughs> well, that, that, kinda, that will be posted. Well, that's what Thor is all... I mean, that's not what it's all about, but that's the whole... That's what that's what the characters of Thor... That's that's what Asgard is. is My this, understanding, though, in the comics, there's more, especially the older comics, yeah. there's more of an emphasis on it actually being magic as opposed to yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the science fiction retcon came later i believe it did come later but i think it's a really interesting way to go in both the comics and the the marvel cinematic universe that i love that idea that it's just it's this alien world where just the the technology is so advanced that to us it's magic you know well that that's interesting because and obviously i know to loop back around to history and then ari i know i believe you have a, a book in the vein of comic book history yeah i have a couple of uh, a couple yeah. of books i uh, you know, I was actually reading something the other day, and I'd love to get your take on this and, mm-hmm. and everyone's take on this. You know, we're talking about comic book history. I think it's interesting, science versus magic. You know, I was reading uh, somebody, it was a counterpoint to the idea that the Silver Age was more science and that the Golden Age, mm. everything was based on magic and sorcery. Oh, that's interesting. And kind of the counterpoint to it was just that people see that now because the Silver Age concepts of science are more modernly accepted. Whereas when the Golden Age stuff was coming out, mm-hmm. that it a lot of it was straight sci-fi it wasn't really thought of as quote unquote magical until 
until that point of view changed when everything went nuclear in the Silver Age. Well, I massacred asking that question so badly. I mean, no, 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 there's, no, 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 you're not. But I mean, it, just, it really depends which character you're talking about. I mean, Hawkman, the original Gardner Fox, was definitely magical with the archaeological. It was magical, right? The archaeological. And by the way, Gardner Fox is one. I'm kind of obsessed with Gardner Fox. He's one of my favorite yeah, writers. Rightfully so, yeah. yeah. Right, writers from the 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 Golden Age and the Silver Age. And when you watch TV shows like The Flash and Legends of Tomorrow, there's so many Gardner Fox characters and concepts in those shows. I believe he's credited. They gave him a street name in an episode of The Flash as well, also. They did. They did, but I mean, you know, just when you look at characters like like Hawkman and, you know, the original Flash, he co- co-created... Jay Garrick. Yeah. Jay Garrick, yeah. But I mean, the original Flash is science fiction. The original Green Lantern, I believe, as created by, you know, Martin O'Dell and um, and Bill Finger, I believe that's magic. It I is think fantasy, that's what's right yes. with, the, yeah. with the green flame, the kind yeah. of... Although but it, even, even in the 40s stories, the idea, it, it's kind of described as magic, but it's also of extraterrestrial origin. Yeah, I was just going to say, isn't it a meteor or something? Yeah, so it's kind of, it's looked at as magical, but on the other hand, that could also really be framed as scientific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, and you're saying in the 50s, there was just more of an emphasis on science in the mainstream culture that shifted our kind of acceptance of it. Right, like when Julius Schwartz, when 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 DC kickstarted the Silver Age with with Barry Allen as the Flash, Mm -hmm. like all the characters, they had these, you know, very quote-unquote scientific, either scientific or explicable, non-magical explanations. You know, Barry mm-hmm. Allen is uh, doused by chemicals, and he's a scientist. Hal well, Jordan is a space cop, Well, but science. I mean, but Jay Garrick is doused with heavy water, I believe. Yes. Isn't it? But in right. that kind of but the culture, you have the kind of the, new right. the hard nuclear... Water. Is it right. hard, it's like, hard water? Space it's like nuclear um, nuclear monster movies and that exactly. kind of stuff. Like yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's the f- communist Martian movies in the 50s. I think it's very... Well, it's... I think it's... I, somebody might say this. I think it's hard water with Jay Garrick. It's hard water, right? yeah. I think it's a soft drink. I think that's what it is. It's soda. Guys, it's, um, uh, it's hot water. Uh, I believe it was... It's, hot, it's tea. Boils it's, it. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's actually the Grant Morrison revamp. Lots of weird stuff happens in there. No, but I I think I think there really is, and you guys have just touched on this, but I think there is something to be said for the fact that like with the fact that we were ex- we as a society were experimenting with atomic energy, and because of that, there were all these monster movies where these monsters were the result of atomic experimentation, and so I think that definitely led to these these different comics that we were seeing in the fifties and sixties, you know, and stuff like Fantastic Four and the Hulk, and you know, and also the Barry Allen Flash and things like that, you know, where. I think also people just in general were so naive about what atomic energy could do and what radiation could do and what it was. And I think a lot of people thought that it maybe would be this sort of catch-all cure for forever. Right. A cure, energy source, power source. And they kind of had this naive optimism, which we look back on it and we're like, oh, Jesus. How do you think that relates to the last three years have kind of seen almost a pushback to kind of space movies, but in a realistic sense? You've kind of seen the Martian. Yeah. Interstellar. Gravity, interstellar as almost a pushback between we've become too cynical about space. I don't know if that's the case. I think that there might be something to that. I I do think we should keep exploring space. I think it's it's necessary for us as a society and the gravitational waves just a couple months ago they what the gravitational waves the discovery of uh gravitational waves well the th- well the thing is that i mean we we kind of need to know what's out there it's yeah. kind of ridiculous not to it's you know 
But I mean, on one hand, what I, what I think is interesting is that you have these movies like Interstellar and The Martian, which are hard sci-fi, which you haven't really seen very much of in movies until very recently. It's a very new development. And I'm not at all knocking movies that are like space opera because those are some of my favorite science fiction movies as well. But they're just different kinds of science fiction. But what I think is cool is that, you know, if you want to see a space opera movie now, you've got something like Star Wars. If you want to see something that's hard sci-fi, you've got something like Interstellar. But what I think is great is that now now the filmmakers and the studios know that there's an op- there is an audience for something like Interstellar. I think it's it's so cool to to do that kind of a film. You know, that said it's not the only type of science fiction you should do, but I I do think yeah, Interstellar in specific kind of plays on the fact that we've been very reluctant lately to explore the outer space and you know, kind of like what if that was taken to its extreme and it was even written out of the history books and everything and and it's there's the fact that if you re, if you do explore history going back to your question a few minutes ago, if you do explore history, things were written out of history books very commonly until recently, you know, I I I wrote this, I've been writing these scripts for this company called Brain Pop, these like little animated shorts for the, this company here in New York. I used to use that when I was teaching. It, yeah. it was an awesome uh, resource. It did so much work for me as a teacher. Well, I, I love I, that website. Yeah, so I've been writing these like little animated shorts in conjunction with the Brain Pop team, uh, the folks there, the writers and producers there, and, and everyone is really cool to work with. And one of them was about Bass Reeves, and it just came out last week, and it was about Bass Reeves, who was this African-American U.S. Deputy Mar- De- Deputy Mar- Marshall and in the Old West again the old west but he was written out of the history books for a long time because of jim crow laws and segregation historians are only now sort of discovering a lot of his achievements and sort of he's putting being put back in these history books but it's one of the terrible you know effects of of slavery of slavery and, and racism and all the, all the horrible things that uh, that unfortunately have been have been a big part of history and that we're, we're only now kids who are discovering, who are reading history books and who are reading about the Old West are only now reading about the contributions of African-Americans to the Old West. And there were a lot of African-American gunfighters and cowboys and lawmen in, in, in the Old West, but we're not only now discovering who they were because of the fact that they were kind of erased. And so something like Interstellar kind of plays on the fact that unfortunately, you know, sometimes societies and governments will take things out of history books because they're considered, you know, dangerous or inappropriate or whatever, you know, and unfortunately, and they're often not. And it's it's not good to keep people ignorant. It's not good to keep people ignorant as to the, the contributions of entire ethnicity of people, you know. And, and it's it's something that I feel very strongly about that my, my wife and my daughter are both African-American it's like I think my my daughter thinks it's a big deal that when she reads when she and I read Moon Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur together that Moon Girl is African American that she's got brown skin that she's got hair like my daughter's hair and you know that she looks kind of like her you know and so I th- I think now we as a society are just now sort of starting to embrace diversity in a big way and I think. I think I think it's all the better, but it's too bad it didn't didn't happen sooner. But I th- I think that it's good that it's at least happening now. And another thing about Bass Reeves, by the way, and this is talked about in the the Brain Pop movie, and this is talked about. And I I just want to say I didn't work on that alone. I worked on it as part of a team with all the the Brain Pop team there. But um, he a lot of historians say that Bass Reeves was the inspiration for the Lone Ranger. Really? Um, yeah. 
And there's a lot of similarities when you do the research. At first, you're like, I don't know. But um, there's a lot of similarities. And I think it really says something to the fact that this he was African-American, Lone Ranger was white, and that, you know, they completely shoved the real the real person who inspired Lone Ranger, they completely shoved him away, you know, and, and he's only now being rediscovered. There's a lot of uh, examples of sort of lost history. I, I was actually reading an article on the way over here about recently declassified NASA files, which mm-hmm. I think they're making a TV show about on like the science channel or something with information that was for whatever reason intentionally hidden but mm-hmm. then before we started uh, talking today you and I were having a conversation about uh, the pirates and mm-hmm. how difficult yeah. it is to even find any information because there simply weren't historical records at the time and yeah. everything's yeah. just sort of rumors so it's it's crazy how historical records can just be incomplete and all the different reasons for that yes wait hold on speaking of is this this book was written with someone with my name oh my god <laughs> I think it's actually a book I wrote. It's called Squash Buckling Scoundrels, Pirates in Fact and Fiction. Thank you very much for that, by the way. But um, yeah, it's a book that I wrote. It's a late last year, I believe it came it came out right around Talk Like a Pirate Day, which was a complete coincidence, by the way. I'd like to say that it was on it was very carefully engineered to come out around that time, but I think it was just a coincidence. But I wrote it for Learner Publishing Group, and I'm really proud of the book. But what's interesting about the book is even some of these pirates that are relatively recent, you know, like there was this guy in the in the 1920s and 30s named Roaring Dan Seavey. I mean, his real name was just Dan Seavey, but he was the pirate of Lake Michigan, if you can believe it. And he had like a cannon on his boat and he would attack these other ships and like steal a lot of the stuff that they were trying to f- to sell across the river uh across the lake and the story of how he was finally captured by the feds while i was writing the book i realized it was complete hogwash it was complete bullshit that the newspaper articles of the day were just yellow journalism that it was all just fabricated and so i had to like go back at the very last minute like the 11th hour and be like wait a minute i need to rewrite this chapter because what they did was they made it sound like something out of an action movie the way he was captured you know i can't remember what it was but the what would eventually become the coast guard the kind of the division of the government that that dealt with like maritime crimes and you know and things like that and like policing the waters they were on to him and they were following him but the way it was written up in the newspapers was like 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 all like 15 men surrounded him and they like jumped onto his boat and they started like whipped out these guns and you know what i mean there was this big battle and every, and not really what happened is <laughs> being like one or two dudes like handcuffed him and it was much more boring and it was like you're under arrest you know but even in 1940s is a long time ago but not that long ago you'd expect there to at least be accurate records right you know but even with that i had to do so much digging to find out what is the real story what really happened so this stuff can get whitewashed it can get rewritten left out of history it's 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 tough to kind of separate the the true story from the the myth a lot of the time especially you know? with with something like pirates where so much of that was legend spread by word of mouth yeah, spreading yeah. fear among the different uh islands and things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh reputations sort of preceding you you know yeah and i think the other thing is that people wanted to believe in the myth a lot of the time i think that the fact that pirates became known as these romantic figures as these kind of like in a way like self-starters you know these like these like romantic anti-establishment anti-establishment yeah thank you yeah these very like like they're like the rock stars of the 1700s they kind of were and that's what you know that's one of the one of the things i close on in the book is with johnny depp comparing saying that they were kind of the rock stars of the 1700s and that that's why he modeled his performance uh, after keith richards's performance and you know in the first pirates of the caribbean movie and that's why of course keith richards pops up in one of the later pirates of the caribbean movies as as jack sparrow's father you know because they were kind of these rock stars a lot of people still thought of pirates as being this very real and dangerous threat but what you 
start to see in the 1700s is some accounts in books and newspapers kind of romanticizing pirates, just in, in, in as like these kind of Robin Hood type figures. And even certain communities considering them like like these Robin Hood kind of figures, in, you know, in terms of like the Somali pirates of today, even certain communities in that part of the world. Because what they do is after they've hijacked these ships, the Somali pirates will come back to their hometowns and bring put a lot of the money back into the local economy. And so they're sort of thought of, I think, the way a lot of organized crime in this country was thought of during the, the during Prohibition and then the Great Depression, you know, as John like, Dillinger type. Kind yeah, but Robin also Robin Hood figure. But also a lot right. But exactly. But a lot of people just thought of gangsters and of organized crime as well, we've got there's no other way to make money. We're living in a ghetto. We can't make money by legal means. We have no, you know, need to make a lot of money to feed our families and we don't have access to a good education. And so that's the the uh the rationale and same is true with piracy. I can attest, you know, not to overly stereotype myself, but sure. coming from Staten Island, yeah. there's a lot of people who still look at Italian organized crime like that and that they were beneficial, literally really beneficial to the community. And there are still, you know, I, can, I don't want to get myself shot here, but there are still certain people on Staten Island who wield some cultural influence. No, I can remember very specifically when I was a kid, I grew up in Baltimore and it was very much in like the Jewish section of town and in Pikesville, which is a large Jewish community. And very much my grandfather, my paternal grandfather and his friends would kind of romanticize like a lot of like the Jewish gangsters that had, that had been around when they were kids, you know? And in this way that I think most communities do, you know, that they kind of take great pride in the fact that, you know, such and such, this gangster, look, you know, Bugsy Siegel was one of us. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. And even though Bugsy Siegel was a freaking psychopath and would have murdered but you, there was that kind of blue cow- collar relatability yeah. to the criminals, like they were they were our guys as opposed to right. you know part of the system. Right, right. And and not like my grandfather knew Bugsy Siegel. That's no, not a course. specific example. You know, he didn't. He I don't know if he ever lived in Baltimore or even went there. But, you know, just the idea that kind of there's something cool about gangsters because they take their their futures into their, they, they kind of grab life by the collar and like do what they want. You know, they have this side of sort of freedom. And I think pirates kind of were seen in the same way in like the 16, 1700s, definitely, you know. I think it's uh, it all comes down to like the point of view. And I think that that's something that we've been exploring a bit more recently. But for mm-hmm. the longest time, pirates were sort of looked at as the bad guy. You take that yeah, establishmentary yeah, yeah. perspective, mm-hmm. you know, and... You know, the British were the ones who were really the ones who were being attacked by the pirates mm-hmm. for the most part. Yeah. So you, you see the pirates as the villain, and then you start to look at this Robin Hood perspective. Mm-hmm. You see, you know, Nassau and the Bahamas, the you know, entire communities that were built solely by pirates and yeah. by their presence and uh, maintained positive relationships with the governors of those islands mm-hmm. and like were able to stay there and, you know, with basically free reign. And it's it's a very different narrative depending on whose side you're examining. Well, that's why there were, that's why the Pirates of the Caribbean is the Pirates of the Caribbean. The Caribbean was kind of like this safe haven for a lot of pirates because they were making deals with the local authorities and it was this place that they could lay low and that, that they couldn't do if they were living in the, you know, in, in England or Spain or various other places where they were they were coming from. But it was also a lot of play it was also something where if you were a member of a persecuted minority, if you were black or if you were of Jewish descent, if you were Jewish or if you were so many, if you were Native American sometimes. This was a way of getting freedom. Uh, This was a way of sort of choosing life on your own terms. And, you know... That's something that that is only, again, only starting to be explored, you know. But uh, 
it's kind of it's where a lot of this stuff comes from a lot of the pirates they named their ship the revenge or queen anne's revenge or something because they thought really like they were getting revenge on polite society that had rejected them you know? I, I also saw that a lot of uh, pirates of the age were actually uh, former British naval commanders yes. and officers, and I read that they actually were getting paid better and had more rights mm-hmm. as pirates than they did as members of the British Royal Navy. They certainly did, and the other thing is that you know there's a lot of theories about that. I don't put this in the book, but... Because there's only one historian that's advanced this theory, but the theory that Blackbeard, the pirate, was actually black, or is, is biracial at least, you know, that there's various things in different newspaper articles that hint at the, the, the idea that he might have been. But also, at certain points in his career, up to 60% of his crew were, were black, were made of, of black pirates, of pirates of African or African-American descent. The reason there were so many black pirates in general, one of the reasons anyway, was, you know, this was the peak years of the Atlantic slave trade. And there was, for a lot of black folks in that time, this was sadly one of the only ways that you could get any kind of freedom. You could, you know, if you were a pirate, if you were part of a pirate crew, you could you could own a weapon. You could vote in matters of concerning the ship. You had, you know, a certain fraction of the plunder would go to you, of the loot that after you raided a community, you know, so that there were certain things that, that you could get that you couldn't get, you know, just, just, uh, just, being a being a black person in 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 America or in England or most parts of Europe in that in that time, so I mean, it kind of makes sense that you said that's where that's why there were a lot of Jewish pirates in those days too. Which is, that's a whole other book. I didn't even get a chance to uh, trying to imagine to explore Jewish that. Pirates. There were well, Jean Lafitte. My God, it's so hot in here. <laughs> well, you joke, but Jean Lafitte, who was a big pirate in the 1800s, was Jewish, as was this pirate named Israel Hands. It's H A N D S, like like these things. Uh, nature's own forks, I call them. That I got at the end of my uh, wrist stumps. Anyway, but Israel Hands was a, uh, a pirate, a real pirate, and then he was fictionalized as a character in Treasure Island who was also named Israel Hands. But he was he was a real pirate and he was he was also Jewish. But just there was so much anti-Semitism in those days. There was so much, and you know, that that's why, that's what led a lot of folks into organized crime too. And into the comic book industry also. <laughs> Which actually I would love to uh, dive into yeah, the sure. history of uh, Jewish people in comics uh, after we take a really brief break. Everyone stretch their legs a little bit here sure so we'll take a five minute break or so here guys all right, and we are back. We've been talking a lot about uh, history, and I know that you have spent a lot of time examining history, not only of pirates and writing about history and mm-hmm. your fictional stuff, but you know, your one of your big projects was uh, from Krakow to uh, Krypton, a yeah. history of Jews or, or Jewish people in comic books. So, could you tell us a little bit about the history? Uh, yeah. So. I, a long time ago, I wrote this, this series of magazine articles on the history of Jews in the comics industry, and I didn't really think anything would come of it. It was really weird. I was originally signed on to write a three-part series about Jews and comics in general. And so the first part was going to be about comic books, and it was magazine articles, right, for this Jewish magazine that's no longer around called Reform Judaism Magazine, and um, that I used to do a lot of freelance work for. And the first part was going to be about comic books, and the second part was going to be about newspaper strips, and then the third part was going to be about magazine gag cartoons like The New Yorker and Playboy and stuff like that. And what happened was I found that there was such a story to be told with the comic book industry in particular that I shelved the other two parts and had all three, you know, part one was going to be the now the golden age and part two is the silver age and part three was like the bronze age to today. You know, today being like 10 years ago because or more than 10 years ago because that's when the magazine series came out. 
So the the magazine articles come out, and all of a sudden, like actual comic book editors are like passing them around to one another, or sending each other the links for the online version because it was both print and online. And people like Neil Gaiman are mentioning it on their blogs, and I think Kevin Smith might have mentioned it on his blog at one point. I think, or at least someone at the Viewskew like site uh, had mentioned it, and it just took on a, like a life of its own. And very quickly, I started getting offers to turn it into a book. And it was crazy. It was like nothing. It got me a literary agent. It got me a lot of a lot of stuff started happening. And I got my first two book deals back to back because of that magazine series. And the first one was a book of profiles of different comic book creators called Masters of the Comic Book Universe Revealed, which Chicago Review, Review Press put out and in, in, um, published in, in 2006. And then two years later from Krakow to Krypton, Jews and Comic Books. And I was already doing a lot of lectures all over the country a lot of which had to do with Jewish take on different subject matter, like Jews and comedy and things like stand-up comedy and stuff like that, history of Jews and film and, and things of that nature. But now it was like a whole other topic that that got me a lot of lecture gigs, and which was Jew, the history of Jews in the comics industry. And I was talking about that, and I started getting lecture gigs like in other countries. Like the city of Krakow actually invited me out as a guest author to be at the, the Jewish Culture Festival in 2010 and 2011. And that was, that was a lot of fun. What's weird is that my family used to live there before the the Nazi Holocaust in the 30s. My my grand my maternal grandmother lived in Krakow, and I got to see a um, the building where she lived, which is now a hotel, and it was an apartment building. And when I was being interviewed in front of that building by a documentary crew that had that was part of the festival, uh, as, as part of the festival, like this is Ari Kaplan, he's a guest speaker. This old British dude comes up to me. And he's like, excuse me, are you Ari Cap? I'm going to do a terrible British accent. But he's like, he's like, I'm not even, you know what? I'm not even going to bother to do the accent because I'm just going to butcher it. So like Michael Caine. I'm like, I'm the Michael Caine of British accent. But he's like, excuse me, are you Ari Kaplan, uh, the comic book writer? And I'm like, yes. And he's like, ah, good to, good to meet you. Well, some of us speak proper English. And I was like, are you, what just happened? What? Like, why would you, why insult me? You at least are familiar with my work, but you know, and I mean, so that's good, I guess. But um, this is very strange. But the funny thing is that I found out a couple of things about my my origin story, I guess my 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 family history when I was on that trip. I don't know if you know this, but a while back, I, I've done a few things for DC over the years as a writer, and one of the things I talk about in from Crack Out of Krypton is the fact that Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, who created Superman were Jewish, and that Superman's Kryptonian name is Kal-El, and the fact that that roughly translates in Hebrew to, like, all that God is could have a couple of other translations. Like, the voice of God, it could could be seen as being kind of roughly translating to that. I found out, I, I through a private detective in Poland, I found out the history of my family in various cities in Poland, which goes back about 250 years. Our family lived there since, like, since, like, the 1700s. And about a hundred years ago, around maybe right before World War One, I, I had an ancestor living in Poland named Kalel. Wow! And what's weird about that too is that it was, now it's spelled C A L L E L, but it's pronounced Kalel. So I thought that was so weird. But also, I wrote a Superman story for DC a few years ago, which was Superman fighting a, a golem. I think, and uh, Jake, you saw that that panel that I was on it, yeah, where I talked about that. But it was, and basically, the reason I wrote that story was because a lot of Pop culture historians have been asking the question, is Superman a golem figure? And there's even a chapter in From Krakow to Krypton called Super Golem, where I address that question. So I thought it'd be fun to do a story where Superman literally fights a golem. But it's a golem made of snow. It's a snowlem because it's a festive holiday story. And, you know, and I, this was before Adventure Time, so... 
their snow golem, my snow golem predates their snow golem. Not saying their snow golem's a ripoff. I think you can make golems out of many different types of material. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe there's something zeitgeisty about making a snow golem. But I, I chalk it up to coincidence. But it, it, was, it was just weird. I don't believe in things like coincidence and... I don't believe in things like, you know, I'm not I'm not a very spiritual person, but I, I do think it's weird that I had an ancestor named Kellel. That's like really bizarre, you know. And then and then it's weird because what I was teaching my screenwriting course at Digital Film Academy the other day, and it was pointed out to me, and I this is the first part of this is true that I I've known my whole life that my first name, Ari, means lion in Hebrew. One of my students is Turkish and he's like, you know Kaplan means lion in Turkish, right? And so my name literally means lion lion. Um I think it's really Really bizarre. As in a lion who doesn't tell the truth, or as in two lions. I think it's just I'm such I'm so ferocious and brave and you do badass like a lion that well, you need two lions to cover it. Do you have a mane that you grew at one point, or I think I'm like the Danny McBride of Jewish comedy writers, and that's what it is. So um, <laughs> very much. By the way, I've has anyone? I don't know if anyone else has said this, but I think I want to go on record here. If they make a movie, a Lobo movie out of the DC Comics character Lobo, I think Danny McBride has to play that character. Cast right. Perfect that would cast. be awesome. I yeah. think I want to see Modoc popcorn tubs and Danny McBride as Lobo. I've always I, been partial to Hugh Laurie as Sinestro, but uh, holy crap, that would be awesome! Yeah, I actually think Hugh Laurie would make a pretty good Batman too, but he'd have to wear the cowl constantly because he'd be so sad all the time. Yeah, have to because be he's the, Hugh Laurie, uh, the Bruce Wayne murderer he's a comedian, though. story he's, arc. He, yeah, he was on Laurie Black Adder. Yeah, 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 yeah. But no, I, I just wanted to slip that in there. I don't know. Has anyone else said that, the whole Danny McBride thing? I'm not, I think I've heard I it. I saw Danny Trejo. I don't know that I've heard, I've heard Danny, Danny McBride. Trejo. That's- yeah, but if you've seen Eastbound and Down, he basically is Lobo on that show. I mean, the way I've always wanted, if I ever wrote a Lobo miniseries or series, Are you or pitching ongoing, Lobo? ongoing monthly, that's what I'm doing. That's what, sure. Hey, I wrote the Deadpool movie, so I might as well. Going to Burbank <laughs> next week? What? Going to Burbank next week to yeah. pitch Lobo? Yeah, exactly. To pitch. That's, I don't know. I just see it as that. Has anyone else seen Eastbound and Down I ever? Have. First season. It's the. Have you ever seen the series finale? I haven't. They I get into get like science it. fiction because they go into the future. It's really they 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 explore what the characters are going to be like in the future and everything. And it's, it's it's they go through like the entire arc of the Danny McBride character's life. Like it's on my the, HBO Go queue along with way too many shows. That other I things, yeah, yeah. And by the way, a way to tie you know Steve Little who um, yeah, was on Eastbound and Down. He was I believe, and he played he's Peppermint Butler on Adventure Time. And I think he either wrote or storyboarded for that, did some writing or storyboarding for that show, or maybe both for for a while. But um, he's a funny guy. But he's done he's done a few of the voiceovers on on Adventure Time. So anyway, yeah. Why do you think that Jews turn to comics? I, th- I mean, I know I I kind of know this, but I was wondering. no 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 no. That's uh, thanks. Uh, so yeah, so in the 1930s, as, I'm not saying anti-Semitism doesn't exist anymore, but it was it was so much worse in this country in the 1930s, and I. I th- this is something that this is a question that I asked myself when I was writing the, the the magazine series that led to the book and I asked this to as many golden age creators as I could as I could as I was able to contact when I was writing the magazine series and then when I was writing for Crack Out of Krypton the book just why were that why were there so many Jews in the comic book industry and all of them said this like Al Jaffe, Will Eisner, Stan Lee, all you know Joe Kubert all of them said like variations on this Jerry Robinson and that is that because there was so much anti-Semitism, there were so few job opportunities for Jews. And so if you had any kind of creative bent or creative aspirations, you couldn't 
get a job in an advertising agency often because they had anti-Semitic quotas. And that was true for a lot of other creative fields, but it wasn't true in the comic book industry because the publishers were, were often Jewish. And so a lot of folks sort of drifted into the comic book industry because they needed to, to feed their families, they needed to feed themselves. They had all they could do was write or draw pictures and and so this that's a field that they kind of fell into. Could you talk a little bit about how certain comic creators kind of expressed I'm talking early in the gold yeah, age yeah, yeah. with things like Kirby having cat punch Hitler and how that kind of reflected maybe a sensibility of their of their Judaism. Yeah. Well, I will say that the Jews didn't exactly have a monopoly on doing stories about, you know, superheroes punching Hitler. I think that's something that everyone wanted. No, see in all seriousness, I think that's something that that just a lot of people wanted to do. And I do think it's weird because I think today there's this sort of thing where I think a lot of people like lump in World War II with all the other wars. And it's not like a lot of, you know, World War I was a very, people were getting into the, a lot of, a lot of countries. Yeah, a lot of countries were involved in World War I. World War I did not have to happen. World War I was, a lot of countries goaded, were goading their, their, Treaties, their population. Yeah, they were, they were goading the populace into, into getting involved in the war for very selfish profit, you know, profiteering reasons. And whereas World War II, I mean, when you study World War II from any sort of historic angle, one of the most disturbing things about it is that Hitler does emerge as this kind of almost like a cartoon supervillain in that he really was trying to conquer the world like like Dr. Doom would or something. And he came, what's frightening is he came insanely close. Like he came very close. And that's crazy. And so I think like there's so many wars and I'm generally a pacifist, but there's so many wars that were not justified, but this is one that was pretty justified. Wasn't, but was it, didn't Cap punch Hitler before the U.S. entered the war? Yes, and they there did. Because there were a lot of pro-Nazi sympathizers. There were, and there were too. a lot of, and they, they got hate mail from isolationists and people who thought we shouldn't enter the war. And, you know, we did enter the war pretty late. You know, we entered the war is like the late, <laughs> at like the latest possible point before Hitler was going to start turning towards us and trying to conquer us, you know, us being America, you know, but... I will say about that is that a lot of comic book publishers did start to have World War II themed stories around the time we entered the war. And some of them even beforehand, like like Timely, which is now Marvel. And they very much took a stand and said, you know, Hitler needs to be, something needs to be done about this guy, which is absolutely true. But I do think that for a lot of... Didn't, uh, didn't Siegel and Schuster also do a, uh, a Superman story, I think, for Look Magazine? For Look Magazine. It was like it was like two pages. It was a very, very short. Yeah, a short. Where but, they, you know, um, but I think it, it raised morale for a lot of people. And it was, I think, capturing Hitler and Stalin. Right. They like fly, they literally just fly them to, he flies them to Geneva and drops them off to serve war crimes charges. I yeah. Think, and, I, and I think that kind of encapsulates like a lot of the appeal of of these characters just on a very gut level on a on a very deep level where where a lot of folks i mean if 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 anyone listening to this if it, if anyone's ever been like mugged or had anything like that happen to them you wish someone would swoop down and help you you know it's a very basic power fantasy you know and i'm not saying that in a bad way at all i think that it's a power fantasy in the same way that uh, far i'm far from the first person to make this this comparison but in the same way that a lot of the gods and goddesses of folklore and mythology are a power fantasy you know and just sort of the way we wish that the world worked at its best you know but i think that definitely in times of strife and times of war you know that these these characters can kind of serve as a very powerful metaphor for that kind of sort of thing the wish fulfillment i, I think definitely also when you see if you were 
were a Jewish boy, I'm going to assume if you were a Jewish boy or girl growing up during World War II and you saw Captain America punching Hitler, it was a very powerful image for you because the chances are, especially if you had family in Europe, they were being persecuted and possibly murdered or tortured, and that you wish something could have been done, you know, that that there was really a Captain America that could swoop in and solve things very quickly, you know, and powerfully. And I mean, I think a lot of people living in this fa- in this country, a lot of Jewish people were living in this family had sort of survivor guilt, you know, and felt like they wish they could have done something and they were powerless to help a lot of people. You know, I know Al Jaffe had people in, in his family who were killed during the Holocaust. And, and, you know, I mean, my grandparents, my maternal grandparents survived. They survived Auschwitz, but a lot of people in my family didn't, you know, and I, as a consequence, I have an extremely small family, you know, so I mean... You know, I, I think I think this is images are powerful and stories are powerful. And I think for a lot of Jewish kids reading these comics in the forties, this was a very powerful image, you know, of Captain America and a lot of these other characters like Superman and Wonder Woman, which definitely took on sort of a patriotic bent during World War Two, you know. Before we uh wrap up today, is there anything else that uh anybody wanted to ask that we didn't address? Kale, Emily, Kara, Brian? Anything else you wanted to plug besides the uh, Lego Star Wars books? I don't know. The Lego Star Wars, the first Lego Star Wars book, uh, Face Off, comes out in June of this year. A month before that, the Spider Man Storybook Collection comes out. Uh, Lego Star Wars book come, Face Off comes out in uh, from Scholastic in June. The Spider Man Storybook Collection, where I have one story, the the, the Western, sp- the Western comes out in May and. The stay tuned for details about uh, about the other Lego Star Wars book when it, when when it's announced. Right. Hopefully, I'll be able to announce it uh, at, at some point in the next several months. And sign those NDAs yet? You do have to sign an NDA. No, I'm saying, have some. you signed those already for the next possible book? Yes. Yeah, I have. Um, I was kidding. But but I can't wait to start. To, you know, I'm looking forward to the, to when the second Lego Star Wars book is announced because I'm I'm very proud of that one too. I, they, both these books I'm having a lot of fun with with them, and you know one of the fun parts about writing them is that my daughter is really into the Lego Star Wars toys and you know and, and kits and everything. And she and I have been building. My editor Mike Petranik has been very nice to send us like Lego Star Wars kits and everything. You know what I mean? And and we've been building them together. And it's a really nice like father daughter bonding thing. I'm not trying to say she's going to take over the comic book industry in a couple of decades when she's of age. She's certainly a proud. But I'm though. grooming her. She has her favorite comic books, and she's five. And so I'm was very it Mozart proud who played when he was four? It is. It is Mozart. So is she kind of the kind of Jack Kirby Mo- meets Mozart? I mean, I would rather say she's like you know the plug in like a female cartoonist meets oh, Mozart. Sorry. But I you chauvinist pig. <laughs> but um, but I will say, I, I will say that um. That she loves SpongeBob comics and she loves My Little Pony comics and Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur and I, um, Patrick Starr is an influence on that. Uh, I mean, us all. and and Welcome to Showside, which is quite good. Ooh, what's that's that? Z two. It's Ian McGinty. You uh, you know, it's it's this comic from Z two. You guys aren't familiar with it, but anyway, um, I'm getting off track. But the the five minute Avengers. I'm just story, curious if yeah. I can ask you a quick question. Sure. I can just ask you a quick yeah, question. Yeah. You know, you've mentioned your daughter a few times on yeah. this podcast. So I'm just curious. I've noticed. You know, anyone who's listens has noticed you've done a lot of all ages appropriate work. Mm-hmm. And a lot of work that's geared at kids. Is that all stuff that you were working on before? Like, is that kind of a field that you were interested in working in before you had your daughter? Or oh, yeah. did, ha- did becoming a parent kind of gear you towards that direction? A little bit of both. It's weird because a lot of people assume, like like you just said, that, that you know, that I was, I've just been doing this because I'm a parent. But really what happened was because I segued from 
TV writing to comic book writing. And of course, I still do a lot of writing for television. But a lot of the early stuff I was doing in television was in kids' animation writing. And so that was kind of the way I segued into comic books. I had done some some writing for Cartoon Network. And that kind of was, I you know, when I was meeting the first few comic book editors at DC, like the, some of the Johnny DC editors, like Joan Hilty, who was at DC at the time, is a wonderful editor. I don't know if you guys have interviewed her or anything at all. Oh, okay. But, um, and I worked on a History Channel comic with, with her like four years ago, too. About what? It was called Mankind, the Story of All of Us. And it was the tie-in comic for the... Uh, I used documentary that. series. Did I you use that, that in my classroom also? Yeah. So you're so you're responsible for the children of the children's storefront on 129th getting their history education. Basically, you're welcome. Checks can be made out to Ari Kaplan. <laughs> I believe they call themselves Kaplanites now. <laughs> hey, I mean, from your mouth to uh, you know to their ears. But no, I uh, so I was doing some kids comics beforehand because that was some of the first comic book work that I had done. I, I've written you know a fair number of adult oriented comics. That sounds terrible adult oriented that automatically sounds porny. sounds like porny. <laughs> it sounds porny and i didn't mean for it to sound por- porny is a funny word uh, let's just let's just dwell on that for a while with the limited amount of time we have no it, but it's like the the phrasing graphic novel the first time yeah, i was like mom yeah. i would like to have a graphic novel for christmas she was like i'm what do you want me to buy you a regular novel <laughs> It's because when you use the keywords adult or graphic or, you know, they're euphemisms because we live in essentially, uh, you know. And then you were like, no, no, it's not like that. And you showed her the cover and there was like Catwoman with her. Emma Frost. Just like- <laughs> yeah. It's like when you're a kid and you walk by an adult video store you used to and you'd be like, oh, it's just a video store for adults. Like. And yeah. they're like, no, no, it's not a regular video store. Yeah, yeah, no, but uh, but ever since I have, but to answer your other question, Brian, ever since I have become a parent, I definitely, like, I wrote this kid's graphic novel for Capstone in 2013 called The New Kid from Planet Glorf. And that was definitely, that was one of the first things I wrote expressly for my daughter. Yeah, I saw that. So that's based on all from your brain? That's Is that based on an IP at all? It's not creator-owned, if that's what you're asking, no, but it is an original It is an original, original character that I, that I came up that's with. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, it was really fun. It was for this imprint that they had at the time a capstone called Comics Land. And this is like part of the first or second wave of Comics Land books. And it was a lot of fun. Jess Bradley, who's a wonderful illustrator, lives in the UK. She she illustrated it. It's yeah, her art looks great. Yeah, I hope she and I get to do something else together at some point because we get along really well and we had a great time collaborating on this book. And there's Jess does not look at all like my wife. For one thing, my wife's African American and Jess is not. But my daughter, whenever she looks at the picture of me in the back and the picture of Jess, she she said this. She's like points to this and she's like this is daddy and then she points to jess and she's like that's mommy and i'm like no <laughs> you know that that's not true why would you s- no does your wife wear glasses though sometimes okay she should but she <laughs> she doesn't often wear her glasses but she you should wear your glasses it's good for you anyway <laughs> and it like she's gonna like she's ever gonna listen, listen to, to this this, this nine hour <laughs> podcast thing that thank you very much for having me on it by the way oh we're more than but, happy to have you but and and the uh but the five minute avengers stories collection is out now from marvel press from disney book groups marvel press and you know aside from that and the lego star wars books um th- those are mainly hmm? face off face off and uh and that's in june spider-man storybook collections in may swashbuckling scoundrels is out now from learner and those are i guess the main projects that i wanted to is it to plug. is it true i mean I, i'm not sure if, i heard a rumor that lego nicholas cage is in face offs is that can you confirm that or lego nicholas cage is not i wish i could say that lego, lego he's actually lego, lego travolta lego yeah. travolta is not lego margaret cho if you want to go there oh, is wow. not is not in it either lego Remember? joan allen 
Is Joan Allen in that I movie? Think she's in it. It okay. would be so much easier for them to take their Lego faces off than it would for Lego the... John Woo. I mean, I did a. I was obsessed with that movie for a while. Oh, it's so it's such a silly such, movie. Such a cheesy movie. It's, I want to take his face off. <laughs> yeah. I just like how. And that was a spec script. They sold that. It's not like they wrote that as an assignment. Uh, you ever listen to the podcast, not to promote another podcast? Uh, Make sure you listen to all of ours twice, and twice. then you can and listen to this other one. To yes. One. Uh, how did this get made? Oh, with um, Paul Shear. And that's it's Paul Shear, and it's also that uh, Jason Manzukis. Thank you, Jason Manzukis. That's a fascinating. I've only seen it like once or twice. They had but one that's on Face Off. Fascinating. Oh, okay. There was a rumor the movie was in development for a while of all the other potential face-offs that were at one point it was going to be Harrison Ford and Michael Douglas. I kind of want to see that movie. And there were like and then one of the polls at the end where everyone got to choose their ideal face-off like Stallone and Arnold. Wow. Also, wow. I don't know if you heard, so you said you wrote for TRL. Yes. Paul Shear does this thing on YouTube called Sheer RL, where he recreates episodes of TRL with both improvised dialogue and word-for-word dialogue. Oh my god, okay. well, they... And they're hilarious, and they have comedians playing the guests, and I think he plays Carson Daly. Yeah, sure. There's one version where he also did the Arsherio Paul show, where they do the same thing for old Arsenio Hall episodes. So what oh. we're saying is it's a good thing you got these other projects all together now, because there just went all your productivity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but it is funny. I gotta check that out. I wonder if they do the episode of Arsenio Hall show where Andrew Dice Clay they kind do. of breaks down they a do. little bit. They did, uh, and uh, June Diane Raphael plays Andrew Dice Clay. And that wait, why is her name so familiar? Who she's she? his wife, and she's the person. Well, more importantly, she's the person on How Did This Get Made? The other person. Okay, it's, okay. I've probably seen her. Has she been on Drunk History? Possibly. Possibly. I think everyone's been on Drunk History. That is, I, I am like so obsessed with that show. That's a fascinating. Have you my so my favorite good. Comedy Central show right now is Nathan for You? Oh yeah, that's and that's re- a great show and review. I haven't seen Review yet, but I'd like to. It looks, looks pretty funny. That dude was on Eastbound and Down too, Andy, Andy Daly. Daly. He's yeah. brilliant. See, it all comes full circle. It all, it all, it Danny all. Danny McBride, a.k.a. Lobo. Yeah, exactly. If we're going back to that, I just want to throw out, I've always wanted to see you, Lori, play Shade. Okay. Or The Shade. whichever like Starman adaption? Yeah, from, from DC Comics. Who's Eloy? Uh, Lori. Oh, Hugh Lori. I, I thought you meant Eloy, who's one of the Herculoids, I believe. And I'd, well, I'd just like to see a full-on live-action Hercules. Aren't Herculoids. The, I mean, if we're going there, the aren't the Eloy? Like how is that? How is that? Hanna Barbera cartoon from the so '60s with this weird elephant thing that sure. shoots balls it out of shoots its snouts. <laughs> how how is that not not been relaunched with like every other kids property that's been relaunched? I'm still waiting for live-action Johnny Quest too. They just didn't DC just relaunch all the old Hanna Barbera stuff? Yeah, so now their time hipster to do shaggy it. with the tattoos yeah and, yeah 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 the, hip, the, the hipster beard and everything yeah, yeah. Uh, the herculoids are gonna be with uh in a book called future quest with a uh, space ghost and, are they uh, really johnny quest is and, that true and birdman this is fantastic space news quest. i don't know how i missed that book this is, i was probably too caught up this. in the they're doing a scooby doo director of napoleon dynamite what kind of avengers who frame roger rabbit with all the 90s nicktoons Oh, yeah, I knew that. I knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Kabam movie. Yeah, it's like it's Kabam, a- Hey Arnold, Rugrats. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wild Thornberry. Yeah, the, the Nicktoons movie, right? Action it League Now. I think it is. Yeah, I think Action League Now is in it, too. 
Who's that? Oh, was that from? That's uh, one of the Kablam things. Yeah, yeah. It's those, those stop motion, yeah, right? Yeah, the action figures. Yeah. As a kid, I always okay. wanted those figures. I, I swear, I had the GI Joe that they used for Stinky Diver. I I made them. So Pete and Pete, great shows. On that note, talking about Nickelodeon shows, I think we should uh, get wrapped up here and remind everyone else that you're listening to Comics Verse, and you can find us all over the internet at uh, ComicsVerse.com, Facebook.com/slash/ComicsVerse, uh, iTunes, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Twitter at at Comics Verse. There's a whole bunch. We're on we have a all the social medias. I don't think anyone's had a MySpace since 2002. You, guys, you can contact us on Friendster <laughs> if you're looking for it. If you look, for, if you find our old live journals, oh, our live journals are very important. Live journals, Zanga. Zanga. I'll be, I'll be, you know, not on Twitter, but I'll be sending out carrier pigeons every now and then. I actually am on Twitter. I'm at Ari Kaplan. But, gotcha. Um, Twitter at, at Ari Kaplan. Any other ways uh, yeah, that you want to uh, be contacted? Website. I'll be sending smoke signals. Um, <laughs> Do you have any storks? Pon- Pony Express. Storks? Not a stork, but that's only for babies, that's isn't I, it? Yeah. That's the only we're, thing you can send by stork is a We're baby. working on our uh, Morse code so that yeah. the telegraph lines will be opened up again. But. Yeah, we're, but we're trying to we're trying to branch out. First it was comic. Now it's baby delivery is the real thing. Oh, that's that's good. Yeah. That's good. It's a whole new industry. And you could you could swaddle the baby in old comics. Exactly. You know, recycling. But like I'm talking like uh, 90s comics, you know, things that were made millions of them. Yes. Yes. X-Men number 1 I was about for to all say the X-Men boys. Number X-Force one. number 1 for all the girls. Although I think that the the kids, you know, would chafe under like the foil covers and everything like that. That might be an issue. The variants might be a little too harsh on yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we could put them in a protective cover and then be fine. we can polybag the children. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one three month old baby, a uh, uh, mint condition. You just stick it in C- a long box. CCG, CCG grade 9.2. Okay. On that note, everybody, thank you very much for joining us, Ari. It was a pleasure to have you and a pleasure to speak with you. Hey, thank you. And uh, don't forget, everybody out there listening, that you can find this and many more podcasts all over comicsverse.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Later. Later.